0: Hey, it's Jordan. I am uh, delighted to be joined by Shahid Buttar. Uh, you are a constitutional attorney. You've been a, a non-profit, uh, an activist in the San Francisco area forever, musician as well. And uh, frankly, you just got me on Twitter. I was, uh, saw your campaign video for uh, San Francisco... To become a uh, United States congressman to knock off Nancy Pelosi who our uh, status Quo audience knows very well as uh, we like to cover uh, her in my view uh, corruption
1: watch out Washington we the people are coming to take back Congress and we're bringing with us some big ideas like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal we did it in New York we did it in Minnesota we're doing it on the national stage and now we're bringing that voice back to San Francisco my name is Shahid Buttar. I'm running for Congress. I'm an immigrant. I'm a Muslim. I grew up in rural Missouri. When I was 16 years old, my family lost our house as I graduated from high school. I got my undergrad degree while working full time after 10 years of night school. Then I went to Stanford to study and teach law. I've fought for your rights for 20 years from San Francisco to Washington DC as a constitutional lawyer, policy advocate, writer, educator, and grassroots organizer. And now I'm running to serve the people of San Francisco by fighting corporate corruption in Congress. We don't have the corporate cash that's kept Nancy Pelosi in office for 30 years. In fact, we just don't take corporate money. That's why we're mobilizing the community. Meeting in living rooms and neighborhood centers while we're out in the streets fighting for change, demanding universal health care, fighting for your children and grandchildren's right to a future free from climate crisis and a government for, of, and by the people instead of the 1%. A voice for school teachers, working class families, and immigrants, the 99%. This movement is just getting started. After 30 years of the same representation, San Francisco deserves a champion willing to return our city to the front lines of the progressive movement. Our city stands for inclusion and pride, peace and justice, and environmental sustainability. We can't wait another 30 years for our leaders to evolve on climate change. Delay is no better than denial. The time for action was yesterday. America is the only advanced country in the world where getting sick can leave you homeless, and higher education buries people in debt for the rest of their lives. The only voices we need in Congress are ones who will take action to fix that. You have a choice. Either let profit-driven corporations destroy our future, or instead vote to reclaim this country for the people. Vote for Shahid Buttar in the March 2020 primary, and join our campaign in the meantime. We can protect the future, and we must.
0: So I wanted to start, uh, you ran in 2018 uh, in the Democratic primary in San Francisco. Didn't do, I mean, you, got, you lost by quite a margin, but still, in Nancy Pelosi's backyard, you got 8%, which isn't nothing. Um, I wanted to ask you, what, what's kind of inspired you to run uh, the first time against her and now a second time in 2020? Obviously, we've seen in my view, a growing arrogance, uh, where she kind of mocks people who want Medicare for all, she kind of belittles the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing as, oh, that's just a few people. Uh, What sparked you to give it another go uh, to try and beat her in 2020?
1: Well, so to start at the last part of the question, what what sparked me to give it a go in 2020 is precisely to join that wing that the speaker, unfortunately, is inclined to deride in 2018 what motivated me to run was simply as an advocate, I've been working for two decades in a variety of movements, the peace and justice movement, the anti-globalization movement, the climate justice movement, the movement for black lives, the immigrant rights movement, and across all of these movements, I've seen our central concerns fall on deaf ears of people who pledged to represent us in Washington, and what drove me to run in 2018 ultimately was the frustration of seeing our institutional establishment turn a blind eye to any of the number of issues I've been working on, particularly mass surveillance and immigrant rights. It just so happened that uh, in the spring of 2018, uh, the speaker made a big show of mounting a long filibuster essentially in the house, which she's uniquely poised to do uh, while unfortunately throwing immigrants under the bus in uh, the policy fight and at at the same time uh, whipping votes against Uh, The position that the digital rights and civil liberties community was seeking with respect to surveillance reform To protect not just privacy, but also dissent and democracy and we can unpack how those values relate to each other if that's interesting But in the end the 2018 cycle worked out great for us Uh, I was only in the race for three months at the very end of the cycle and We got more votes in a primary from the left against Pelosi than anybody had in ten years and uh, we were a thousand votes short of the Republican who was able to edge us, particularly because there were half a dozen other progressive challengers behind us, uh, and having declared early in 2020, having just been declared essentially the presumptive leading challenger closely from the left, I'm very eager to take the seat in 2020. There's a couple things that have really shifted for us in the year since. One, and you named, uh, you named her already, is AOC, the phenomenon of a young progressive freshman member of congress who's boldly articulated a visionary progressive agenda from the Green New Deal to embracing Medicare for all uh, as other figures on the national stage increasingly are doing that's created a lot of discursive space for a platform that when I ran in 2018 was still wild and radical right and and I ran at the same time as uh, representative Ocasio-Cortez and while I didn't do you know nearly as well as she did I learned some lessons from watching, and I'm very happy to to, to learn from uh, from others. And uh, you know, between the new space for a visionary, progressive, uh, and democratic socialist agenda in Congress, to also the uh, having built a ground game in 2018 that we were able to launch with already, you know, it's a totally different thing to build a campaign from the ground up versus having launched with 80 volunteers. And having doubled that number since, you know, we're able to field a dozen people on the street at any given day, and it's uh, a remarkably—it's a remarkably humbling thing to witness the support of a community come behind uh, my voice. And frankly, you know, I'm uh, the reason I'm running in 2020 is to give voice to those uh, folks in the different movements I've worked with and my supporters who, I think, like me share a frustration that our voice in Washington for so long has turned a deaf ear to our concerns.
0: Right. And uh, I want to ask you, because when referencing uh, now Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, what I think worked for her really well was two things. Number one, uh, that viral video that I think uh, it's hard to really capture that somebody is really the same as the people she's trying to get votes for. Uh, She really came across, you know, working at a bar and, you know, kind of getting ready and taking mass transit. And, you know, she looked like your average person she was representing in that district. And the other thing was she really um, grass out canvassed. I mean, Crowley didn't do any door knocking, really, but she reached people that traditionally don't vote. How Mm -hmm. do you how do you do that in San San Francisco, particularly in Pelosi's district? Because, I mean, you tell me. But there's a lot of old money in San Francisco, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of establishment, country club Democrats who don't see a climate crisis like we do, don't see um, a healthcare crisis, and really buy into this, you know, Trump, 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 and, you know, be happy with your incremental change. Right. I,
1: uh, I certainly don't think that we are going to be very competitive for the country club uh, mm-hmm. set in San Francisco. Uh, But ultimately, there are more of us—that is to say, working people—than there are of them, right? And one of the remarkable things about San Francisco, because our housing crisis here is so remarkably acute, is that even very highly compensated people feel very uh, intense pressure from their housing costs. I mean, I've talked to people who, you know, uh, tech engineers, for instance, who might make, uh, you know, well over six figures, who will uh, complain about the cost that they pay. And rent, and you'll meet people who, <clears throat> you know, maybe are uh, what we would consider independently wealthy now in any other setting, who bemoan their inability to buy a house here because you know you can't get in the housing market in San Francisco for you know under I I, I would imagine now it's probably up to two million or a million and a half. I, I'm certainly never owning property in this city, and I don't think most San Franciscans ever will. A majority of the city is renters, uh, which is to say we uh, we share interests, and among other things, affordable housing. <laughs> Which is one of the many values and uh, government investments in social services that Congress unfortunately has abandoned in the last generation while the incumbent in the seat I'm running for uh, has been in office. Uh, the affordable housing crisis here in San Francisco, which has a flip side of the coin, is homelessness that is much more visible and people see it here, but the displacement is the invisible side of the coin, homelessness being the visible side of the coin, and it's a Uh, both of those are challenges that confront cities across the country here in San Francisco it is the issue that dominates our local politics many people forget to trace the local problems to the federal route and it was in the 70s that the the government started stepping back from substantial investments in block grants through HUD housing and urban development to states to incentivize property developers to include affordable housing in their property developments that money dried up largely under the tenure of Speaker Pelosi since she's been in office. And, you know, I I am fond of contrasting the remarkable increase in military spending, which continues unabated, versus the precipitous collapse in federal spending on housing that has led to now the housing crisis that has created so much displacement and homelessness around the country.
0: And Um, uh, It's interesting you mentioned the 70s. I'd love to know what you think, because what also happened around the 70s, as I'm sure you know, is the Regulations and rules on money and politics started Mm. to peel off. So you have a lot of big real estate developers (sighs) who give people like Speaker Pelosi a lot of money.
1: You're definitely seizing on an object of interest. I want to come back to the ground game question that you raised, because I was sort of spinning up yeah, to yeah. that, but I'll come back to that in a second. Money in politics is an issue that's very, very near and dear to my heart. It was one of the very first issues I worked on as a young lawyer in Washington. So my very first case, after I graduated from Stanford Law School in 2003, uh, was FEC, Shays Me In versus FEC, and I was part of the team that uh, represented the House co-sponsors of the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2003. This was a bill, a law, Bipartisan law that took a great deal of political will to get through Congress, you know I think a dozen hearings to craft this measure that aimed to take corporate soft money out of politics And this was a response to a problem that's only grown worse since in that time in 2004 We had the opportunity to challenge this Uh, uh, We were supporting the law by challenging the Federal Election Commission's attempt to undermine it in regulation And we won that case before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, four years before the Supreme Court and the Citizens United decision laid waste to everything I worked on in that phase of my career. And I do think absolutely repudiating the notion that money is speech to protect not the individual right to articulate one's perspective with as much force and capital as one can put behind it, but instead to protect democracy, the shared norm that relies on one person, one vote, right? We have a tension between the individual right and the collective right here and the collective right to democracy, I think, is more important than the individual right to subvert it uh, by giving some voices, megaphones that that drown out all others. Mm-hmm. And on I, the ground game question, if I can. Yep. So, yeah, the, the, the key way to, to win any election, particularly against an entrenched incumbent, is to drive new voters to the polls. And I want to step back from the question to, like, put it in a context and then zoom in on it. A lot of people, centrists in particular, often think, I think, that politics are static and that they're a rate along a bell curve, you know, you have people on the left, you have people on the right, everybody's in the middle, so you win an election by aiming for the middle, right? And that's a very confused, mistaken, shallow understanding of politics. You'll see all the pollsters, most of the mainstream media, that's how they understand the game, right? In fact, politics are fluid and people respond and shift in response to what they hear and what they learn and what they get exposed to. And we know that in the United States, the majority of people don't vote, right? Our turnout is abysmally low. If we crack 60%, we're excited. And that is to say the sleeping giant in this country are the millions of Americans to whom politics has seemed like so much noise and distraction without anything meaningful to offer them. And the way that you activate and engage that segment is by speaking to our interests. right? Medicare for All does that. Every American at some point, everyone gets sick. Everybody has parents who get sick. Many people have kids who get sick. They need surgeries. They need doctors. They need medicine. Every one of those experiences can either be opportunities for corporate predation by pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies, or they can be opportunities for us collectively to respect our human dignity and share our resources and provide health care as according to need instead of as according to exchange, right? We already do this for public education. We already do this for fire services. Why don't we do it for the hospital? it makes no sense that we allocate healthcare according to profit it is barbaric frankly and I think when we propose these kinds of solutions to people's lived needs I think we can reach legions of people frankly who haven't participated in the political process before and that's exactly what I plan to do both by being very visible on the ground at all the movement uh, events over the next year also by being very present in the different communities around San Francisco Uh, You know, we're doing two events a day on the weeknights, three every day on the weekend. There are signs up all over the city. We're just getting started. I have a year to win this race, and I have every intention
0: of doing that. And I wanted to uh, get into San Francisco in particular. I was just in Seattle uh, reporting on the homeless. I mean, I think it's beyond a crisis. It's a catastrophe at this point. Uh, I'm from New York City, so I'm used to seeing homeless people, but it seems to be, uh, you know, in the... Uh, kind of in the shadows of Amazon. You know, you have the... In, in Seattle, they call it Jeff Bezos' balls because the Amazon balls are right there. But, I mean, you have, like I'm sure in San Francisco, in, in Seattle, rent's gone up about 70% in five years. I yeah. mean, this is creating an unlivable... Uh, it's not just Seattle. San Francisco, Portland, um, LA, Chicago, mm-hmm. New York. We could go on. DC to uh, some percent, yeah. Right. So I'd like to ask you... Because I remember I went on vacation as a kid to San Francisco and I loved it. And now I go back to visit my cousin. It's still great. It's still beautiful. But yeah. it's—I mean—I think it's beyond gentrification at this point. And it's as Bernie Sanders has <clears throat> talked about on the campaign trail. Yeah. It's—it's it's really creating a, a, a tale of two cities economically. Can you kind of talk about? I know you've worked on private uh, private data issue, and, and we'll talk about that. But with the advent of technology how would you as a congressman actually make these companies responsible for the people they're displacing
1: so there's a couple different ways to slice this here in san francisco in the last election cycle we adopted a measure proposition c which taxes large companies to provide essentially services for not just homeless folks but also public investments in affordable housing and a variety of services i think that's ultimately a more appropriate place for this to happen at the local level I don't think the, well, it's the one issue here. At the federal level, we allow corporations to escape most federal taxation. Amazon, for instance, paid zero taxes. That is unconscionable and preposterous. If corporations paid their fair share to the general tax fund, that would alleviate a lot of the pressure, particularly under Pelosi's unilateral rules, get constrained spending on social services, as Republicans have long preferred, and I want to emphasize that, the Speaker of the House, representing the Democratic Party, Unilaterally imposed a Republican spending rule that requires new spending on social services to be offset by new revenue or offsetting spending cuts to other programs. So, if we are to live under the unilateral Republican rule of Speaker Pelosi, we are going to have to find new revenue to revive the federal investment in affordable housing. One way to do that would be to shake loose some of these taxes that are going uncollected from not just tech companies. I want to focus here particularly on financial transparency and uh, offshore havens, there's a whole range of ways in which companies evade taxes through other mechanisms. And the legality of these measures speaks to holes in the policy, right? Every loophole is an opportunity to close it. And I think there are a ton of loopholes we can close, particularly to squeeze corporations. And I wanna make the point here, there's a big difference between corporate tax rates, which could also be progressive in the same way that individual tax rates are, such that large corporations are paying larger uh, proportions of, um, uh, of their of their of their income as taxes than smaller ones you know so as not to be a substantial burden to small businesses but it, but also to make sure that the larger corporations of our society that as you're noting are creating vast externalities that impose on the rest of us to make sure that they're paying their fair share I think that's the solution to uh, making sure the companies are supporting the rest of us at the moment though the thing I would just draw our attention to it's not just the companies who aren't supporting our communities, and companies? Frankly, you know, there's a, a notion of corporate social responsibility, and I'm all for it. But we generally don't think of corporations as serving the public interest, right? They're for-profit entities. So government, you would hope, might preserve or present some alternative to that. And what alarms me is the fact that our government doesn't support our communities either. And I totally get you on wanting to hold the companies to account. I just want to make sure that our tax dollars are getting spent more on affordable housing and doctors and
0: less on missiles and bombs. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to Speaker Pelosi. Uh, obviously, you have to run uh, on what are you for. But by the numbers, I mean, she's taken uh, over $1.1 million from Wall Street in her career. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, she's taken uh, $1.1 from real estate. Uh, she's taken a lot of yeah. money from uh, you know, lawyers and law firms, which a lot of them represent financial interests. So we know who Nancy Pelosi is, but she's also the first Speaker of the House. Uh, she has... Female Speaker of the House. There, there have been other speakers, uh, but yeah. Yes. She's groundbreaking. Good, and,
1: and good. trailblazer, absolutely. Right, right.
0: Um, so I think that Nancy Pelosi, she definitely has a lot of media support which gets to what Bernie has faced uh, in 2016 and well, is facing now. Uh, there's independent media like us, but how do you take on uh, somebody like Nancy Pelosi and get the facts out there about the money she's taking from Wall Street, the money she's taken? Uh, you're talking about she's never known a defense uh, uh, budget she didn't want to increase, she's never known a war. Uh, how do you get that out in a way that um, doesn't, D- diminish uh, what you're trying to do, and you won't be looked at as you know trying to take down uh, the historic speaker who's taking on Trump now.
1: Right, so one of the critical uh, ingredients in the soup at this, this moment in time is that the speaker has already committed to stepping down from the speakership in either 2022, in any case, or in 2020 if she's unable to uh, secure a supermajority of support from the Democratic caucus. Uh, which is simply to say that she has numbered her own days Uh, And I don't think that after she passes the gavel on that she will be inclined to stay in the chamber much longer after having been the speaker twice I suspect she won't be terribly excited about being a backbencher, Uh, so I I expect her uh, career her laudable career in public service to be uh, Over soon uh, at her own public announcement, and so I'm Mm -hmm. essentially running for the opportunity to see who represents San Francisco in her wake. I think particularly with respect to her 2020 uh, opportunity to continue to hold the gavel with two-thirds of the caucus's support, she's going to need support from the Progressive Caucus, who she has repeatedly undermined. You know, you noted before how she keeps kicking Medicare for all in the shins. She's had a prominent aide who's been uh, you know, whipping votes against it, uh, demeaning the policy. She derides the Green New Deal as the Green New Dream. Uh, she. I want to focus on the PAYGO rules, and I, <clears throat> I made this point before, but it bear, bears repeating. Through the 90s, one of the central fights between Democrats and Republicans in Congress was how to account for social spending. And Democrats said, you Republicans spend out of social – you guys spend out of the deficit all the time. Every time we build a new uh, aircraft carrier, every time there's a new uh, strike fighter that gets built, you know, that's deficit spending. Why can't we do the same if we want to make sure that people can get to a doctor or get medicine? And Republicans were like, no, 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 no. Deficit spend, the deficits are bad, we can only spend out of the deficit with the military, which I just want to note makes absolutely no sense in the first place. But fast forward, it's 2019. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House for the second time. So she's very intimately acquainted with Washington. And what is the very first thing that she does? adopt the Republican demand from the 90s to hamstring the Democratic caucus and prevent social spending to serve the needs of the American people. That is not an act of resistance to this administration. It's not an act of visionary response to the various crises that are besetting the American people and future generations. It is an abdication of responsibility. And frankly, I think part of uh, the rationale with the case we have to make locally is simply that the Speaker of the House, unfortunately, from impeachment to the PAYGO rules, to foreign policy from Venezuela to the West Bank, unfortunately, in too many places, marches in lockstep with our kleptocrat in chief, despite mouthing so-called resistance. And I think enough San Franciscans certainly are outraged by this administration that they will show up to the polls and we will seek real representation to make resistance more than just a hashtag. Uh, and, and send someone to Congress who's gonna be willing to fight. I've been doing the job of fighting power in Washington while representing San Francisco's interests for most of the last 20 years. Either in San Francisco, I spent a decade in Washington working inside the institutions and outside the institutions to actually mount, resist, like, actual resistance to Bush's wars, uh, to Obama's assault on civil liberties, uh, and I hope to do so uh, against, the if this criminal administration survives the next election, God forbid, I want to make sure I'm in Congress to make sure uh, that, that Trump doesn't run roughshod over the Republic,
0: And, and I, also, I hope
1: particularly
0: to support a Senator Sanders agenda right. to drag us out of this mess. And I also want to, before I get to the next question, just point out, yeah. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is the leading national figure from California, aside from the governor. So if she wanted, if she was a proponent of Medicare for all, Odds are it would have had a little easier time passing in California. California, oh, yeah. California was primed to be the first state to pass single payer. Nancy Pelosi could have led on that, and we know what what ended up happening. Yeah, that's right. She's.
1: I would not describe Speaker Pelosi as a uh, unfortunately as a leader. She's a great tactician to whip votes, um, but she hasn't historically led. Right when when Bush was invading uh, countries left and right, and we had hundreds of thousands of San Franciscans marching in the streets, she voted to continue Bush's wars. When she was given evidence that the CIA was violating international human rights commitments that we fought a world war to establish in the first place, she didn't raise an alarm, she swept it under the rug. Uh, you know, When Edward Snowden came forward to note that Obama had continued the Bush era assault on privacy and dissent, what did she do? She participated in the vilification of a public servant who resigned his career to serve the public interest. Uh, and, and, and instead sided with Beltway agencies, who Eisenhower warned us to fear, right? We were, we were warned by the creator of those agencies that they would come to undermine our liberties and our democracy. And, you know, we should have people in Congress who remember that warning and are willing to act informed by it instead of being all too often, as you're noting, actively complicit in
0: and I'd like to get into your background a little more, uh, moving on to the Trump administration, too, because uh, you're an immigrant, you're a Muslim, um, and you have, you're seeing now, day to day, basically a not so subtle, uh, I think, Islamoph- yeah. Islamophobic, and some of this. I mean, that Trump tweet uh, basically trying to depict Congresswoman Omar, uh, to me, as a terrorist. Uh, it's yes. just beyond the pale. Uh, tell the audience a little bit more about your background, uh, your story, and uh, you know, your thoughts, because obviously San Francisco, which is a diverse, um, you know, mixed bowl uh, of many, many religions and, and uh, you know, sexual orientation, and it's always been known as that, but what yes. Trump and the Republicans are trying to do uh, is basically create a, an other uh, for political
1: gain. Absolutely, and I wanna focus not on Islamophobia but the flip side of the coin. And I often say to Muslims you know, who are concerned about Islamophobia, get in line because the racism that we are confronting has long been established. You know, African Americans have been dealing with these challenges in far worse ways than us for 400 years. So mm-hmm. as much as I share concerns about Islamophobia, I feel like calling it that is entirely too charitable to the right wing because it's not Islamophobia and it's not anti-black racism. It's not anti-immigrant xenophobia. It's not anti-gay homophobia. It is intersectional fascism mm. that in affects and threatens all of us. And you know, to to describe it in any one of those pieces, you know, to describe the elephant as the piece of it that we're groping in the dark, you know, the tail or the tusk, it does a favor to the right wing because it's not just the tail or the tusk, and it's not just one community that's impacted. We are all threatened by the demonization of vulnerable people. Because the nature of that demonization is that it rotates. We were supposed to learn this 80 years ago, right? In Germany, when Pastor Niemöller says first they came for the communists, and then they came, first they came for the trade unionists, then they came for the communists, and then they came for the Jews, and then they came for me. You know, this idea of, of noting that uh, oppression migrates, and when we allow principles to become established in one context, they never stay there. Uh, that is pres- precisely one of the concerns around surveillance, in my mind, is that you know you might think that it makes sense in some context, but it's always its growth and metastasis and then the threat it presents to those very vulnerable people who are demonized. Um, I want to expand the context here, too. A lot of people think that a constitutional crisis started on September 12, 2001, and that before that, the United States was a sterling example of peace and justice that respected our own constitutional norms. And they might forget that the FBI tried to drive Dr. King Martin Luther King, to an early death before he was lionized with a monument a national holiday appropriately for a legacy that we generally ignore and overlook even still today. Uh, it, and now I'm distracting myself from the <laughs> point. Remind me what the question was, where were we going? Uh,
0: basically talking about the growing I mean if you were if you became a congressman, you're going to be joining two uh, you know the first female congresswomen that are Muslim uh, that have been day to day under attack Right. yeah.
1: So right, I'm I'm very informed by my anti-colonial history. So my family came from Pakistan. I was born in England, and I we we came both from Pakistan to England, and then from England to the U.S. seeking freedom, freedom from the racial, uh, particularly the religious discrimination in Pakistan uh, that derides the sect of Islam from which my family belongs as um, supposedly heretical. We're we're basically like the Muslim equivalents of Unitarian Universalists in that we acknowledge the legitimacy of all practices essentially. Uh, particularly ecumenical, but that uh, is uh, objectionable to a traditional Muslim sensibility, and so we were heretics there. In England, uh, my parents encountered a very rabid era of racial discrimination towards South Asians, um, and uh, that was what drove us to the United States. And so having migrated twice around the world seeking freedom, um, you know, the first time before I was born and the second time after, I, I've had an opportunity in my own life and in my own family to witness uh, this quest for opportunity and this quest for an unfettered life um, uh, one unfettered by the discrimination the arbitrariness of government that our own bill of rights here in the United States promises you know, I'm very inspired by our constitutional legacy it's not an abstract thing to me neither is popular sovereignty an abstract thing to me it's why I've dedicated my career to building popular resistance to the rising fascism that I've seen in slow motion over the last two decades uh, or uh, not just the popular sovereignty, but also the substantive commitments in our constitution. You know, it's, it's why in the last 10 years I've been particularly committed to trying to defend what remains of the first amendment from the assault upon it by surveillance and executive secrecy. Um, you know, the, this, this idea of it taking an immigrant to remind Americans what it means to be free and what our own constitutional commitments mean. You know, I take that as an obligation very seriously because it does seem, it is certainly unfortunate and I think ironic, but it's also very striking to me that so many Americans take that legacy for granted, don't understand what it means, don't understand how it's at risk, don't understand how to protect it. And and frankly, I feel uh, some degree of privilege, perhaps, I would say, in having the opportunity to be here at this place in this time wielding my background, uh, if only because you know I feel like I've spent uh, my life preparing for uh, precisely this kind of crisis uh, and and to represent my neighbors in, in trying to stop it.
0: Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you specifically, because I know a lot of what you've worked on over the years is privacy rights, surveillance. So it's kind of comical watching our current lawmakers, you know, uh, grill Mark Zuckerberg, because they clearly don't know a thing about technology, data. So if you were to become congressman, you're looking at right now Facebook basically, knowingly or unknowingly, selling away data to the highest bidder. Uh, we obviously have live in a surveillance state where I mean at any given mo- i mean just by your credit card they know <laughs> what you 're doing and where you where you 're going uh, We know that uh, google there 's been kind of abuses with data surveillance things like that, and I think it 's uh really becoming more prominent because people uh are, you know just passively on Facebook and things like that don 't really think you know all their information is being circulated all over the place uh, Tell people kind of your background with that and what part of your platform is uh, to rein in some of these abuses? Yeah. So uh, I work at the Electronic Frontier
1: Foundation. I've been there for the last uh, four years. I was hired by the organization to bring to it a strategy I'd established at a nonprofit that I'd led for six years before that, that's now called Defending Rights and Dissent. So what I've done at EFF over the last four years is build a national grassroots network of local digital rights organizations, hackerspaces, community groups, campus groups that are in many places uh, informing their neighbors about digital rights issues. In many places, they're mounting local advocacy campaigns, challenging, for instance, police surveillance in their respective cities, or seeking net neutrality protections at the state level or a right for owners of digital devices to be able to repair and tinker with their devices. So that's been my work at EFF. Uh, particularly focused on digital rights across the spectrum of surveillance, privacy, censorship issues, which implicate intellectual property like copyright and and patent, and particularly developing action targets for people at the local and state and federal level to promote those movements in policy. Um, With respect to the companies, there are a whole bunch of issues to consider here. Um, One of the ones that I think is most uh, critical is the fact that anything the companies get the government gets to. And I want to distinguish on the one hand, you know, Facebook might collect information from you while you use not only its platform, but the rest of the web too. And they will co-opt numbers that you give it for two-factor authentication security purposes to then use for marketing purposes. And these are profound problems that I would like to see people have alternatives to embrace. Uh, and in the lack of choice in the online arena across the different platforms is one uh, challenge that, frankly, I would like to see addressed. Oversight could be really effective at that. The oversight process in Congress has been woefully ineffective, as you noted. You know, for members of Congress, if I had an opportunity to grill Zuckerberg, what I'd be asking about, or what are the comparable services in each of the district, particularly targeted advertising markets that the company serves, and it would, I think, reveal itself on the congressional record in an oversight hearing of that sort, that there is not nearly as much competition that federal uh, antitrust regulators might think. You know, so to inform the regulatory process through the oversight process is a critical one. Uh, I studied antitrust law before uh, uh, leaving law school and, and uh, had an opportunity uh, you know, to, to, to briefly um, re-engage those issues in the contemporary context. And, and I'm eager to see uh, uh, what Congress can do to inform antitrust enforcement. There's a whole other opportunity here to breathe new life through legislation into visionary antitrust reforms that would, for instance, resuscitate through a statutory measure um, long um, uh, forgotten jurisdictional, uh, pardon me, uh, jurisprudential doctrines like, for instance, the essential facilities doctrine. Uh, I wrote an article about that for EFF recently um, uh, that might be interesting to people. And then finally, uh, the biggest issue, again, with the companies is that anything they get, the government gets too. And there are a couple different problems here, the most present of which, in my mind, is the PRISM program. So there is one of the many programs that Edward Snowden revealed is the practice of government agencies into hacking major tech companies to take whatever data the legal departments of the companies won't give over willingly. And Congress has never in the last six years now seen fit to do anything about it. That is preposterous. And the co-optation of Silicon Valley and its many users around the world by the national security agencies is again among the things that I think our current class of representatives have failed to address. Uh, And I think as long as people have fallen asleep at the switch while our country continues to hurdle off both a climate and a constitutional cliff is disqualifying. And I want to see uh, new voices in to at least ask the questions that at the moment, as you noted in the oversight context with Zuckerberg, people aren't asking. Just to close the loop here, the last time I had an opportunity to ask anyone a question inside a, uh, a, a legislative hearing chamber in Congress. I was arrested for it. And that was for asking an Obama administration official how he got away with lying to Congress under oath about mass surveillance when Eric Garner was killed in the street without a charge or trial six months before. Uh, You know, I I didn't break any laws in asking this question. The hearing was over. I was just approaching him as a journalist and I was arrested for an act of journalism. I would like to be in a position where someone has to actually answer these questions instead of putting me behind bars for, for even daring to raise them.
0: And uh, lastly, uh, as we as we mentioned in the beginning of this, there's going to be other progressive candidates. Uh, you were the top uh, performing progressive candidate in 2018 in the primary against Pelosi. So, it's San Francisco. There will be others who, who run on the progressive side. Uh, yeah, sure. what? what what would you say sets you apart from them as why people should gather around you? Uh, because obviously you don't want so many progressive candidates that it splinters an already uh, tough uphill climb to take out Speaker Pelosi. Yeah, that was one of our challenges last time, is just that
1: there were so many candidates that sort of carved up the field a little bit. Uh, you know, Ultimately, I was more compelling to the electorate in the last cycle than campaigns that had been in the race for four times as long as we were, and that outspent us by as much as 30%. So uh, it, it was pretty clear to me in 2018 that the local movement expressed itself. And so having uh, had that momentum, I think that's, uh, that's one thing to just note that anybody else who runs against me in the cycle won't have had that. Um, I think also, as I, there are uh, people I understand who plan to mount campaigns. I haven't seen any volunteers for any other campaigns. I haven't seen any window signs for other campaigns. I haven't seen any media stories about other campaigns, and as far as I can tell, uh, the volunteers across the local movement who are interested in unseen Pelosi are working with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's about as, as much as I can say. If, if somebody else wants to, to run and, and, and raise their concerns, more power to them, uh, to the extent they agree on a visionary socialist agenda, I think that's great. Uh, I think the biggest thing that voters should focus on when they evaluate candidates is not only what they say, but particularly what they have done. Uh, and what they have done to promote the values that they say they care about. It's, uh, you know, as a candidate, there's lots of ways to, uh, to to have participated in the political process. You know, I've written articles for major publications. I've been quoted in international news media. I've testified at local bodies. I've testified at federal bodies. I've written coalition letters. I've mounted federal lawsuits. I've managed state lawsuits. Uh, some of which you know in the marriage equality context ended up being quite influential in terms of their later uh, import and the campaign finance work similarly you know I've been arrested in San Francisco I've been arrested in Washington speaking truth to power I've been on the front line with communities from Ferguson uh, to DC to the mission here in San Francisco Uh, and I think that solidarity the demonstration of solidarity is the thing that I would invite voters to particularly insist upon from any candidate who who seeks their support. And I think it's really critical at this time that we move beyond representation as a projection of someone's career, back to representation as a public service. And you know, I've been representing my communities without a seat in Congress vis-a-vis federal policy for 20 years. What I basically want the opportunity to do, what I'm auditioning for the opportunity to do, is to do it with a, with a seat in the body. Uh, and the opportunity particularly to, to, to get on the other side of the institution and, and to inform it with the concerns that I've long raised in a variety of ways on a variety of issues and uh, I would I would say to voters you know evaluate candidates according to both what they say and what they've done and uh, whether or not you think that they're effective standard bearers for our movement and uh, as far as I can tell um, uh, or at least as far as the 2018 results seem to objectively suggest uh, I'm the best positioned to make that case vis-a-vis the speaker.
0: And how could people find out more about the campaign how they could get involved
1: You can visit us online at www.shahidforchange.us. You can also visit us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at shahidforchange. We welcome any support from around the country. Pelosi has a national base, and it will take a national base to unseat her. Uh, I'm very eager both to promote more meaningful resistance to this criminal administration and also to secure the the political consensus on a Green New Deal and Medicare for All. I appreciate your time this morning. Reach out anytime. Thanks, Ben. Shall
0: hit the tar. Uh, we will keep in touch. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statuscoup.com where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as 5 to $10 a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statuscoup.com slash join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you.